hello and uh, welcome to the latest regular podcast from Blurred, where we talk to people from business, politics and culture about our changing, blurring world. And I get to geek out discussing things that really interest me with people that interest me even more. Today I'm talking to Sue Garrard, until recently the EVP for Sustainable Business and Communications at Unilever. Hello Sue, thanks for being here. My pleasure, I think. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. Now at Unilever, you were responsible for leading the company's USLP, the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, um, which was and is one of the most ambitious sustainability plans any global company has ever attempted. But before before we talk about that, I was going to start start at the top um, and start with the big questions that kind of then will link, link back to that work. Um, and some of the questions, I mean, this is kind of depressing subject matter, right? Because, well... Greta Thunberg is right, isn't she? Yeah. And everything's a bit screwed. Um, so I'm going to start with the climate. Yeah. <laughs> and unless you're Donald Trump, you will agree that the, I think everyone agrees, that the scientific consensus is that we are facing um, an absolute emergency. How bad do you think it is? I think it's probably at the uh, worst end of the spectrum of what scientists are projecting now. Wow. So without going mega geeky and too long, the IPCC, so that's basically the group of scientists that all governments uh, have put in charge of looking at all the research, modelling and data about what's happened, is happening and will happen to the climate. The latest thing that they said was that we needed to halve carbon emissions, in fact, all greenhouse gas emissions, but mainly carbon, in the next 10 years, if we are basically to stand any chance of avoiding a runaway uh, process of heating that can't be stopped. Now, that in itself is pretty bad news because the chance of doing anything in that 10 years, the chance that they're right, because at the end of the day, this is modelling an unknown, Uh, are all big questions. But the reason that I think I'm at the worst end of that is because if you look at lots of other very eminent scientists doing lots of work, some of which feeds into that, we're now seeing just one example, Mm. that the rate of melting uh, at the poles is dramatically faster than the IPCC had put into their model. And the reason that that matters is because that creates this thing called a feedback loop, which is basically like a vicious circle of change, where the more that happens, the more it has knock-on effects, and the quicker the change happens, and the more difficult it is to stop. So when I look at all the data and the research coming out, and I look at what the projections are, what all the scientists are saying about what the lead indicators of that change are, uh, I think that we cannot literally cannot spare a day if we are going to take some of the edge off the problem that is charging towards us so do you do you get frustrated then we still hear the phrase saving the planet yeah a lot and and i've always struggled with that because yeah. the planet will be fine exactly it's, it's whether we can live on it yeah. on, on, on what's left yeah that's the problem yeah i think there's a i mean So the specific thing, you're absolutely right, saving the planet, there's a whole load of um, sort of pseudo-optimistic cliches Mm. that are out there um, that are not accurate. 
But I think there's another really big underlying question in that, which is, which no doubt you're going to come on and grill me about in a minute, which is this whole question of vocabulary and language and how you pitch this. Um, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I believe that although you need all sorts of different ways of tackling this, we can't and we shouldn't treat people like kids anymore. And we shouldn't give them something that is patently untrue. Yeah. So all the language around saving the planet is not only inaccurate, um, it's, as you say, the order effect is wrong. We, um, you're right. And we, we will, I will come on to language because it's, I think it's, I think it's a really interesting part of the, the, um, the issue here, particularly when we talk about comms. But, but before I do that, I, it's a pretty bleak picture that Greta's painting, your painting, and that the science is increasingly um, making clear. I, I recently finished reading Hans Rosling's wonderful book, Factfulness, quite famous book, which is a great read, although my criticisms I have it, of it largely around this issue, that he, there's a kind of lack of urgency in that yeah. book around climate change. But anyway, within it, he, he relays this anecdote about meeting Al Gore at a TED talk, and Al Gore said to him, we've got to create fear and there is a lot of fear in the current discourse but there is a also a, a whole other school of argument that is the fear is unhelpful and it makes people feel helpless and therefore hopeless in the face of this this emergency what how do you feel about yeah the need to scare people <laughs> i think and it's interesting because greta thunberg got quite heavily criticised for using the word panic. Yeah. Uh, and she had a very clear answer to that. Um, so, again, I basically, I don't think there is a silver bullet, one-size-fits-all solution to this. I think in certain circumstances, Al Gore is absolutely right. You know, and let's face it, Al Gore is a legend. I mean, he, he championed the inconvenient truth. Mm -hmm. You know, he was probably one of the three or four global leaders of his era decades in advance of everybody finally waking up and realising the inevitable. So where fear is relevant, I think, is in, in two areas. First of all, in trying to drive the current system, because frankly, it's the only system we've got, of democracy in most parts of the world linked to capitalism, to start to initiate change itself. And the reality is that inertia is an unbelievably powerful thing. Uh, and you really only move from one state to another or do, take any kind of drastic risks or look at any kind of big system change if the motivation to change is stronger than the motivation to remain the same. And fear is one of the very powerful catalysts for that, but particularly fear of loss. Mm -hmm. And if you look at how markets have worked, for example, the value of the coal industry has declined by three quarters in five years. That is driven by good old visceral fear of markets losing because they're investing in the past, not in the future. So I think there's a, there's a big role for fear in being part of the catalytic process of driving change within the capitalist system. And markets can be amazing and they can drive very, very fast change when they see the shift. You look at how long it took for Kodak to just evaporate. They were all admiring the problem, but what it takes to actually get from admiring the problem to being part of the solution needs a very, very powerful force. Is there a sense then that we um, 
markets uh, are actually overtaking the agenda here, where there should be policy. And I wonder, yeah. uh, is policy keeping up with the market? No. So, the, and that's the, this is ex the second point I was going to make on fear. The other reason that fear, if we can get the balance right, is incredibly important, I would say vital, is to drive consumer voting intention. So at the end of the day, there isn't a government on the planet that in quiet corners won't admit the degree of change that's needed. But the fear that they've got about how they do that and how they remain legitimate while they're doing it and the damage that they do and all the other trade-offs are just overwhelming on top of what they see as an already full agenda. The only way that change happens is very simple, which is when voters say consistently and mean, this is one of the top three things that will determine my voting intention. So if we can get the ordinary citizen in the big voting countries, obviously we'll come on to China because that's really very different. But, you know, this is critical in the US. The difference between getting Alexandria Cordo-Cosata in the States versus another Trump era is literally planet defining. Yeah. And that all comes down to one thing, voter intention. And that is all about the extent to which they're prepared to have all their normal concerns, housing, income, health, etc., displaced. And so this is huge yeah. by a voting intention that says, I want you to do something really dramatic to try and do something around the climate challenge. So you've alluded to my next question already. Um, can, and I told you there'd be big questions, can democracy ever allow lawmakers the space to make those kind of sweeping decisions? Look at the reaction in yeah. France to what are really, yeah. in these terms, modest tax rises yeah. on, on fuel yeah. and, and, and I mean, it all but collapsed Macron's government. Yeah, but that's that wasn't, that's because the way he executed it was very flawed. So the whole point about um, democracy is that there has to be enough critical mass of people saying that the, the, the trade-offs are worth it. Because all of policy making is basically about trade-off. Um, you only have a finite pot of tax, you only have a finite number of people, amount of land, etc, etc. Uh, we have this concept called growth. I think increasingly that is going to start getting called into question. And I think that um, we will start to see a push towards profit as a source of return and flatter growth becoming acceptable to markets. But when it comes to being in government, basically what democracies will need in order to be radical around policy is the sort of thing that AOC, as she's uh, known, much easier to say, <laughs> uh, is this idea of a Green New Deal. And very simply put, that basically says that you have to look holistically at a society level of the impacts of your policies. So you, that, in essence, it means ensuring that there is viable work, uh, that you don't leave a huge hole in the economy, that the way in which you distribute the wealth that the economy creates to create this new carbon-free, waste-free world yeah. is equitably distributed and that you have an economic system that works for everybody. And the reason that the Gilets Jaunes were on the rampage in France is because Macron's policy 
penalise the least well off. Well, right. guess what? People don't like that. And in France, they have a tradition of very visible rioting and, uh, and public demonstration anyway. So that's what we've seen. Are there any lessons we could take from China? You mentioned China. Um, I mean, they spent a decade between 20, 2005 and 2016 opening a, yeah. a new coal plant every week. Yeah. But they are now decarbonising faster than any other. Yeah any other country in the world. Well, China, of course, is absolutely fascinating because the one thing they don't have to go through is this rather tedious process <laughs> of getting voted in, right? So we are, the, the globe is now hugely dependent on them because China uh, is a contributor to the uh, global carbon problem at a level that is greater than all the other countries put together. So basically, if China don't step up, it's game over. Well, frankly, if China and America don't step up, it's game over. So I think, you know, there's a, there's a, a political system. I'm not sure it's a lesson, but it's fascinating to watch how unimpeded by the need to be popular, if you like, mm -hmm. uh, a government can actually drive change in a massively swifter, Quickly, yeah. more wholesale, <laughs> more unequivocal way. Having said that, China is also still, you know, and, and I'm not going to criticise China because I think that uh, their intent is very positive. But when you're managing these huge systems and, you know, parts of the global economy, you have to look at where your income is going to decline nationally and where it's going to rise. So obviously there's a lot of state-funded industry in China, particularly in fossil fuels, particularly in coal and particularly in the types of coal that are particularly bad mm -hmm. for the planet. And those companies that are still state-founded uh, are still uh, doing their business in other parts of the world, notably Poland. So what we need China to do next is to look at how they address that issue of state-funded industries and how they drive that change as well. But I did read a little tiny little nugget of reasons to be cheerful this morning, which is that the first ever, so China, by the way, is has installed the largest amount of solar farms yeah. anywhere on, yeah. uh, in the world. Uh, and the first one was installed recently that had no uh, tax breaks. So then now, it's now self-funding. So that's another tipping point. Yeah. Very, very exciting. Oh, and, and I suppose, come back to your point on markets, the whether you're the Chinese system or the American system, both ruling governments are keenly aware of the movements of markets. Yeah. And they'll make their bets as a state as to what to invest in, but they're also going to be led, I assume, by by movements in, in the markets as well as to... Yeah. And, and at the, the end of the go. day, the reason I'm not completely... Manic I'm, so I'm, I'm not really that depressed about China. You know, that's a, that's a hell of a juggernaut, and they basically turned it, metaphorically, I'm stretching this metaphor too far, <laughs> I know, on a sixpence. Uh, what's equally interesting, and the reason that I don't kind of feel m totally terminally depressed about the states, again, is that the markets are working despite the assertions of Trump. Sure. Well, in fact, two things are working. The markets and the dominance of uh, and power of mayors in cities, because actually... I don't know what the right percentage is. It's probably 80 to 90% of major consumption and emissions taking place in yeah. cities in the States. 
and almost um, irrespective of Trump's policies, a lot of the city-states are, notably in, in California, but much more widely than that, are starting to adopt zero-carbon policies right. and driving and similarly change. similarly in China, yeah. it's actually concerns about air quality of its citizens in Beijing, etc., yes. that's driving yeah. most of the urgency at, um, yeah. at a party level, isn't it? But even, even in the States, despite um, Trump repeatedly saying... Uh, that his job is to shore up uh, the so-called great industries, including coal, which, of course, is very understandable because his vote was all Rust Belt and that's where all that, that industry is located. We are still looking at a record number of closures in the, in the coal industry in the States. Yeah. And we're looking at a record number of um, solar and renewable plants being opened in the States. And we've already reached a tipping point in terms of employment where more people in the States are employed in the renewables industry than they are in the traditional fossil fuel industries, most notably the coal industry. But there's only so far that will go until you start to you need major kind of market levelling and economic yeah. instruments. You know, the classic role of government, which is penalties and incentives and creating a level playing field where everybody will pile in and be part of the future. So uh, this is, I mean, that's, a, I guess, the macro picture of it all. If, if markets are what will truly drive change, and I, I completely agree with you, and I think the signs are there, that that's, that's what's happening. Um, then individual businesses, whether they're global or small, and that need to respond. Do you, do you, and this will start to come on to your, your work at Unilever, but do you truly believe global business can can turn the tide in, in, in this current um, climate crisis? I think it's questionable without more direct policy intervention. So... Doing two things would make a massive difference to that and accelerate it. And that's basically, so this is, a, this is here we get into the slightly techie language. Yeah. Uh, so health warning, I won't do another one. Um, the, 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 the basic idea is that at the moment we're in this trouble because we haven't taxed or placed a cost on what we extract from the planet and the damage that we do to it. And so we end up with polluted water, carbon emissions, etc., etc., etc. So the idea of the, the kind of the macro policy idea is what's called taxing externalities or natural capital, uh, water, you know, finite stuff, the stuff we dig out of the ground, etc. Carbon tax is probably the one that's talked about the most and the most well understood. Uh, and that is a very simple, it's a mechanism that's worked, you know, for hundreds of years, which is if you want to try, drive behaviour and raise revenue that you can reinvest, you tax things. You know, it started with window taxes mm -hmm. and stuff like that 400 years ago. Um, but if, if very simple uh, taxes were introduced around carbon and a few other externalities, then we, I think we would start to see a very quick shift because it would make a fundamental difference to the costs on the balance sheet right. and the affordability of alternatives. Without that, you're really asking major companies to, make, to fundamentally challenge their own cost base, yeah. their own business model. Is that and challenge it, not needed to a degree, though? I mean, like, to what degree is the... You, you mentioned questioning... 
um, the pursuit of growth yeah. earlier and flatter growth, but the same applies to, to companies. Yeah. To, what, to what extent does the, well, the pursuit of profit, yes. how can, can that be compatible with protecting the planet? Well, I think it can on an individual basis. So I think there's a, is growth infinite? No, even Adam Smith yeah. said that, you know, kind of founder of economics said that growth is just a stage when you step right back and, and look at evolution. Exactly. Yeah. Um, in the short term, I think that the, the opportunity for good quality growth that helps deliver the solution is the most powerful mechanism that we've got because we know it, we understand it. A lot of the technology already exists. What we need is for them to have the conditions to be competitive and for people to want to invest in them. And we need that to, to sit alongside the managed decline of old industries that are part of the problem. And we need to shift businesses to a point where they see all waste as having value. And again, you probably need, you do, you do definitely need a policy framework that makes that happen. Because we need to fix the carbon problem, we need to fix the waste problem, and we need to fix the pollution problem. Uh, and and we need to fix the biodiversity problem. And they're all interlinked. And it's highly complex for a business to understand how it does that. Mm. So simply having the bandwidth to build the capability to get your head around that is challenging. Then understanding what you can do in your own operations is quite challenging. But of course, the bit that really matters particularly for a big global business like Unilever, or hundreds of them, is that often the biggest impacts are either upstream in your supply chain or downstream with your consumer use. And so the really big challenge for companies is can you actually look across that whole value chain, understand how you become part of the solution, not the problem, and then crucially, there's this French word which I've started using quite a lot. How do you valorise it? How do you extract the value from right. it? By saying to consumers, if you buy our brands or products, you're being a responsible consumer. Because un unless, you can, unless you can extract a value yeah. from what can quite often be significant extra investment, for example, sustainably sourced palm oil, um, then there isn't a business case. Well, this is back to your voter intent point. Ultimately, yes. you've, got, you've got to communicate this and, and engage the public. Yeah. I won't use the word consumer because I, I hate it. But um, yeah. uh, but so, so, the Unilever strategy, when you look back at the how it was expressed on the website, I mean, it was deceptively simple because it, it was articulated as grow the business while decoupling its environmental footprint. Yeah. Um, I say deceptively because <laughs> that took up a decade of your life. Yeah. Um, how successful, without, without, um, without, without telling me exactly what you did and, and the whole journey of it, how, how successful do you feel you were in yeah. achieving you, uh, that? Us, Unilever, or me personally? Well, both. Yeah, because they were pretty intrinsically linked. Yes. Or I certainly I was to, to, to it. Um, I honestly, I'm now working a lot with... Um, the University of Cambridge, you have a sustainability institute. This is relevant, by the way. I'm not going off no, on no, a complete no, good, tangent. Good, good for it. And I do a tutoring with a lot of other companies that want to become leaders in their own sphere. So that's given me pretty regular sense of implicit benchmarking of where we really were as Unilever. And what that's confirmed to me was that, roughly speaking, in its entirety, we were about five years ahead of pretty much any other 
organisation. There were companies who were doing better in a specific sphere. If we look at how extensive and all-encompassing our plan was and our activity was at Unilever, it was it was a unique and b a very long way ahead and still is. Um, but I would say that in the very early days. Um, we hit some very fundamental problems. Some of them I've already talked about, mm. about how do you build the capability, where's the business case, which is pretty significant. You closed the CSR department, didn't you? Which Absolutely. Is, which is yes, know, because CSR is, is, is essentially tokenistic. It says, we're going to continue to do business as usual over here. That's 95% of our turnover. But as a trade-off, we're going to do something nice over there. And if you're lucky, it might be linked to 5% of, tra- of turnover. In a lot of cases, it's just spending money off the bottom line in a different way, to, again, to do something on the side. But it's not embedded into the business. And so the starting point, I think, at Unilever, uh, which was essential, and I would say for anybody who ends up listening to this podcast, this is where you need to start, big green flag, yeah. is you have to define your own uh, sense of where the moral case meets the business case. Because unless you are very clear about that, and unless you see that as additive rather than a binary choice, you will not get very far. Because guess what? Particularly if you're a listed company or whatever your ownership structure is, unless you're not profit making, you have targets to deliver and the, the tension and the, the potential for incompatibility between those two rears its ugly head every day of the week, every quarter where you have to announce your your interims, etc., etc. So the starting point has to be that definition of the moral case and how it meets the business case. And the reality is that we were very clear on the moral case at the start of the journey for the USLP but we were not clear on the business case. And in a way, that's not surprising. We wrote this back in 2008. And although a lot of what was projected to happen around climate has now actually happened, there simply wasn't the sense of urgency then that there was now. So it was very pioneering. There were no precedents. We had no idea how it was going to show up. So it was really an act of deep belief. Um, And... That is a fairly uh, unique thing to get in a FTSE 30 company. But, of course, it caused huge problems yeah. because the company was still... It's, it's fundamental as a core stock for most pension funds. Most pensioners depend on it delivering every week of the year, delivering its dividend, growing in the way it said it will. And you can't risk that for more than a couple of quarters right. when you have that other responsibility. So the big thing that we worked on shortly after the launch was how do we make this, the sustainable living plan, really compatible with and a driver for our business plan? Now, that might sound unbelievably obvious as soon as I say it, but actually... But incredibly complex. (laughs) A, A, incredibly complex, and B, at the point where we launched it, we hadn't worked that out. So presumably... I mean, this is, again, stating the obvious, that the CEO, the whole board, was completely on board. Yeah. How, did that happen naturally? Was that easy? Was that a challenge? How, like, how closely did you need to work? Did you have to convince people, Constantly. the CEO, of the need for Constantly. It? Not the CEO, but, you know, uh, companies just a range of different people. 
uh, and they all have different views and they all have different levels of personal conviction. Um, and it's that classic thing about a doubting Thomas. So there were some people who innately believed it and had a sense of vision about what the future could look like and how you marry the sustainability moral case with the business case. But there were quite a lot of others who were very left brain driven and data driven, as you'd expect in a big company, who were saying, where's, where's the data? Where's the evidence? Where's the proof? Show me the model for how we do this and we don't end up in a conflicted situation. And actually, the reality is it's a massive, long learning arc. And what you have to do is you have to give people enough reason in an, any organisation to put their first foot on the bottom rung of that ladder and to learn from that and to see how the change happens. And the reason that you know I would exhort anybody listening to this who's in a company to start learning right now how you do this stuff is because like every big change, it takes a lot of time and you get a lot of things wrong. And because, as you said at the beginning, we need to start now, today. Now, yesterday, <laughs> there is no 30 time. years ago. Yeah, quite. Yeah. And so it's like everything else. You need to build the muscle. You need to learn how to do it. Um, but what I'm very clear about is that eventually, you know, we will hit a period of very reactionary government policy making in different countries all around the world. Mm -hmm as the impacts start to become, as the, the scale of the threat becomes greater than, than, than the kind of the comfort factor of inaction. And companies that have not started to get their head around what you do and how you do it, so things like a shadow carbon tax, for example, um, are going to find it very difficult to survive because you can't build this muscle overnight. You know, this is, this is about as game-changing as you can possibly get at an economic level for a business and at a macro level economically. Are there any companies you see other than Unilever that are you feel are well on that path? Yes, there are. There are. There are lots, and they're of all sorts of shapes and sizes. Um, I think when you look at business and industry, it's really important to differentiate between those whose business is the source of the problem, mainly fossil fuels. Yep. Uh, historically, you would have said refrigerants. They're still quite a big source of the problem. Um, certain types of farming, massive source of the problem. Anything associated with deforestation, massive source of the problem. So type one is their business itself is a cause of the problem. In fact, there are 100 companies that are listed that have created 85% of all the emissions that have caused this problem, wow. which is a staggering fact. So imagine if you had the global governance to just say, why don't we just take them out as yeah. a start? You know, and just look at the kind of the, the, the macro balance sheet impact of that. Fascinating. Anyway, one can dream. Um, then there's the other type of business, which delivers all the goods and services that we all depend on. And at the moment, because they've never had to, they don't factor in the full value chain impact of the waste, the emissions, the pollution, or the loss of biodiversity that they are responsible for. So those types of businesses, a lot of them are perfectly capable of thinking about the shift. What you have to do is you have to make different choices about where you invest and where you cut cost. But, but my view is that within certain parameters, that's the job of leadership of a company. You make choices all the time. Where are we going to invest? Where's a cash cow? Where are we going to go for the minimum cost that we can possibly get? 
and this will change what that equation looks like. Now, that has a certain amount of elasticity, but it won't solve every problem. And you go through the transition phase of new technologies. And, you know, you're not quite as old as me, but I remember even the first calculator, Mr. Sinclair introduced it and it was 50 quid. And three years later, you could get a Casio for, you know, a fiver. Uh, and we're going to go through all that. And we're very used to it with all sorts of technology shifts and innovation shifts. So it would be really messy. Um, but that's why I, I, I actually don't agree. I agree with a lot of what George Monbiot says. But when he says we need to destroy capitalism, you know, we have a good plan B. Uh, and with the right incentives, as I said before, it can drive change really very, very quickly, particularly if you've got citizen demand behind that. So that strikes me as the plan B you're talking about. You need citizen demand, you need voter intent, you need companies to understand and within the companies, individuals to be on board. Yeah. The markets, the policymakers, all got to be aligned. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure that they're all talking to each other the right way. There's this great line in... Um, it was a UN report from 2012, Resilient People, Resilient Planet, where it says, we need a new political economy that brings people together who have for too long talked past each other, economists, social activists, scientists, global business. Yeah. And I just love that phrase, this yes. talking past each other. Absolutely. And listening to you today, yeah. it, it feels like, um, very genuinely, comms, communications is a huge part massive. of this. Absolutely um, massive. One story alignment around it and and can we all talk to each other and not past one another yeah. that's the uber brief of all time on the it planet it is the uber brief um, uh, yes <laughs> <laughs> an unnervingly big one but 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 this is right right this is yeah. and, and language comes into that we've, yeah. we've touched on yeah um how you know you have a long and uh, and um expert background in comms how how do we all get on the same page? Yeah. Does it start with the language and the vocabulary? I think it starts with motivations and drivers. So if I, you know, I look <clears throat> at what's happening in so many parts of the world at the moment and the way that the growing challenges that we face are prompting people to retrench into extremism and populism. And actually what we really need is completely the opposite. So I, I'm watching with fascination to see how this, how this political, whether that, that will be a wind that blows itself out and whether actually people will, I mean, so much of this comes down to voter intention. If you look at the order effect, I think in the end it will be whether ordinary people believe that a defensive, insular, we come first, uh, and all the you know negative associate exactly <clears throat> yeah. that come with that is the reaction, or whether actually we're going to see the reverse. And you know my little pockets of hope in that come from uh, two or three sources: the massive swing, although not quite far enough, fast enough in voter intention in Australia, where they put climate as one of the the key um, voting intentions. Um, and Australia, by the way, is has been historically way off uh, on this, and yet they will be they will suffer One of enormously the per capita coal burners in the yes. in the world. And if if you look at what the impact will be of a three or four degree climate shift, then Australia basically is 
uninhabitable. Yeah, yeah. four-letter word. Um, <laughs> so that's the first reason I have hope. The second reason I have hope is the unbelievable swing um, worldwide amongst young people who are going to be our next generation of voters who are all just saying this is completely unacceptable. And the, and the thing about them is they're not steeped like you and I in this consumerist world. A large amount of them are looking anyway because of the economic hole um, that a lot of countries are facing of being the first generation for a while who will not and know they will not be better off than their parents. So they already into, they have a different mentality and mindset around sharing economy, yeah. it not being cool to have cars, it's a, that, that whole thing. I think we will start to see more and more of that, a rejection of fast fashion. You know, th this is huge. Tangential question for you. Mm. Would you lower the voting age? Definitely to 16. Yeah, I'd go even further. Yeah. Part because of this. Yeah. You know, yeah. my God, give them a say. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I'm not so sure about this, but my, my husband's parents said from the moment that they started drawing their old age pension, really, we shouldn't have a fate, say it's not our future. Um, and you listen to Michael Heseltine talk about, it happens to be about Brexit, but the, but the philosophy is the same, which is this is a bunch of old people who are shaping the next 30 to 50 years of the country and won't be around to inherit it. Yeah. And it's based on an old philosophy that is gone. And then you see someone like Greta and you think, how can it be right that yeah. you don't, in this country at least, yet have a, have, yeah. have a vote? Um, do you, um, you've talked about rays of hope, do you, do you, are you optimistic or are you, have you surrendered to the despair? No, I can't. I, do, I must say, so now I work on my own, literally on my own, um, and I try every morning to stay very current in terms of the latest reports, etc. Um, I have moments where I just feel completely bleak. And the thing that tends to do that most, actually, uh, and apologies in advance, but, you know, I am not a Facebook fan, brackets, understatement, close brackets. But now I, I loathe it even more because when I go onto it for personal reasons, um, so much footage pops up of... Uh, destruction happening in real time you know whether it's the plastic that's taken out of a, an animal or a bird or a, a fish's belly that's because the algorithm knows this is the stuff that you're interested my in. god <laughs> but you know actually what it does to me which is what i think the risk is of fear is it just makes me want to run away yeah i literally can't or watch ride it away. yeah and i and i have to turn i have to turn my laptop off and go and do something that feeds my soul. And and the read, somehow the written word is still shocking, but it's not quite as bleak. And I think I draw my own lessons about the communication challenge, back to your point about what can comms do, is you need to, you need to trigger enough concern for people to act and for people to recognise that fundamental change is needed. Uh, and that uh, you know the, what the change curve looks like, and we're in, bang in the denial phase. I think we're topping out on the denial phase, but that's very patchy. So you have to have an element of that. But equally, you have to believe that something that are, that solutions are possible, 
and you have to believe that anything that you can do is worth doing. So if you're looking for the construct of where, you know, at a very simple level, where the comms brief lies, but also where I derive that from, which is my own personal reaction, that's kind of where I end up. And it's only because of the work that I do with clients and the work that I see leading some fantastic companies doing big and small um, and the determination of other people. So you, you realise when you, when you plant yourself centrally in the sustainability world and you're not attached to a company anymore, which is the personal journey I've been on in the last year, everybody congregates together, A, because of the challenge and B, because everybody is kind of... Um, looking for where the other bright solutions might be. Right. And fascinatingly, you find that both competition and collaboration can exist in harmony, which is unbelievably unusual. And you find that really all people want is the solution. And so you find a generosity of spirit. There's somebody that I was helping just yesterday, um, which I did for free, which I do happily whenever I can, using all my 30 years of different experience. And she said, can't believe you just giving me this advice for free I said the only thing that matters is that we're part of the solution sure. and that human spirit mentality is really it's there and we just need to keep triggering it and 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 having that as a as a growing feeling so if you are final question if you're a CEO CFO COO whoever listening to this um, wanting to not surrender to the despair and take yeah. some kind of positive action um, and recognise the role your business can play in it. First thing they should do is obviously get in touch with you <laughs> uh, and and uh, and have a conversation. But secondly, practical practical first step for them to get going on this. Yeah. So the first essential thing you have to know is what footprint has my business got? Where should what's your starting point? What's your own ground zero? And really you want to look at, as I said, what's your climate impacts? What's your waste impact? So how much of what you produce gets chucked into landfill or the sea or whatever? What's your pollution impact? Obviously waste and pollution are linked, but they're not necessarily the same. What's your biodiversity impact? So understand those four. Crucially, don't just understand that for your own company operation. So if you run factories, don't just look at the factories. Look at the stuff, where it comes from and where it goes to. Full value Whole chain. Supply chain. Right. Full value chain. Step number one. Step number two, understand what best practice looks out, like out there because lots and lots of people are doing all sorts of great stuff. So don't stare into the abyss and go, oh my God, how do we start with this? Hire a few good people who know where all the all the existing technology and ways of ch driving change are and learn from that. And there's tons and tons of sources for that. Like I talked, for example, about the Cambridge University Sustainability Institute. That's one place that you can go. You can send people on it. They can learn about it. So capability building is crucial. Then two things in parallel. Start to work on your own personal sense of what the moral case for change is and how it could mesh with the, with the business case. It will be conceptual, it will be high level, half of it will be wrong, that's absolutely fine. And at the same time, ask all the young people in your business what you think they should do differently. Mm. All the answers are in the business. Great point. And the energy 
that you will draw energy from as a leader, because this is really hard and you have to be sustained by something. And one of the most powerful things you can be sustained by is your own people. And, you know, all of them will have been on or will know people who've been on these marches. You'll find out half of them are members of Extinction Rebellion. You'll find out half of them have got mates that are doing PhDs in, you know, waste technology. And suddenly, at Unilever, we asked all 160,000 of our employees what our next USLP should be that starts in 2020. We got 40,000 replies. Wow. And that shaped the next plan. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, and then people the, are there are answers. Wonderful. Um, Sue, thank you so much. It was lovely to talk to you. Um, I didn't even get on to, to ask you geekly about geoengineering. So thank I'll God for that. that. <laughs> save, that save that for next time. Um, thank you. If you enjoy our podcast, please do subscribe and share. And we will um, see you again next time. Thanks. <laughs>